uh, part three of Motherboard Does Dune. We have quite a cast of characters today. We have uh, Motherboard Features Editor Tim Marchman. Tim. Hey, how's it going, everyone? We have Motherboard, uh, the features writer, staff writer, featuring, uh, focusing on drugs and uh, drug culture, Shayla Love. Hi, thanks for having me. And Gita Jackson, uh, oh. Dune Head. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I'm the, and, the motherboard dune head. That's what I am. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have two special guests today. We have David Cleon, the uh, an editor at Jewish Currents and writers whose work can be found here, there, and everywhere, and uh, noted Dune film enthusiast. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. And uh, last but certainly not least, Harris Durrani, uh, who is a, another Dune scholar and a historian and uh, someone who's written a lot of very smart things about Dune and cultural appropriation and science fiction. And I can't wait to get into all of that today. We're going to be covering, uh, you know, where, where Dune's at now, the film. We have some breaking news, as I understand it. I'll toss that to Gita in just a second. And then we're going to move into Dune and what it drew from counterculture and drugs and psychedelics of the 60s and how sort of that played a big part of what made Dune so successful and enduring. And we're going to see where that shows up today and what sort of of that original DNA wound up in the film that is now um, so successful that it brings us to our, our news. What's the news, Gita? Tell theme us. Music theme? Theme, theme music first. Oh, theme music first. Play, we'll play in the theme music and then... Uh, While none of us on the call can hear it, we're listening to ominous and impressive synthesizer music from a previous <laughs> Dune version. Right. I think we're it's all enjoying it in our own ways. Is this Toto? You playing Toto? It's actually Brian Eno's, like, did, like, Brian one Dune track, I think. Oh, huh. sick, yeah. I thought you could hear the music. You can't hear the music? I we cannot hear, hear the music, no. Oh, no. wow. Just no, let I me know it. when okay. it's done it's so done. I can say what's it's done. Do oh, great. Start the Dune part two. <laughs> has been greenlit. Legendary Pictures announced today at 2 p.m. that we're getting Tune. <laughs> I'm so excited because the second half of this book is even more absurd than the first. So I'm very, very excited for this. I'm very excited, as I've said on previous streams, for up to a dozen sequels, maybe more, to be made at this exact tempo, in this exact style, by the same people. Yes. I'm very here for that. On the other hand, on Monday um, about how good the movie was, and I did see it. Yes, finally, and it it is it is that good. It is like highbrow dudes rock movie, but that's what Dune is already. So it worked out for me. I have a question for for the room here about the um, the way this marketing rollout has gone. On the one hand, uh, the backers of this movie have already arranged for uh, a TV show on HBO Max. They obviously filmed only like the first third to maybe half of the first book in this series. It seemed pretty obvious all along that they were going to milk the IP as hard as they could to make a franchise out of it. Um, Now the returns have come in. The public is into it. They're definitely going to triumphantly make a second part. But both commercially and even 
artistically, it seemed pretty obvious that they were going to make at least one more movie. So what do we think of the company definitely kind of blackmailing the public with the prospect that a total rejection would lead to there being no more Dune movies and then allowing the public to participate in the success of this commercial product um, by paying money to see it and feeling validated in their choice to have done so. It's, it's kind of a sick psychological experiment, but it absolutely worked. And I, I am happy as a hardcore Dune fan of many years to have been baited in this way. Uh, even if this was all, you know, how it was going to go all along. I, I wrote a very good review of it for TNR. So I feel like I've been part of the hype machine and, and I'm happy to be because it rules. Now, yeah. Sorry, yeah, no, I was just going to, about that review, like, how come you got to run your review earlier than everybody else, and it just, like, shone like a beacon above all the other reviews? Very, very good question. In this case, um, it was because, um, I'm, I'm going to, I guess I won't name him on here, he might be embarrassed, but a journalist who I only knew from Twitter, uh, we were sort of longtime mutual followers, reached out to me, like, two days before I saw it, and was like, hey, I have an extra ticket to the New York Film Festival, um, I know you like Dune. I heard you did another podcast about Dune with Jeet here, which I did uh, before either of us had seen the movie. Do you want to come see it at Lincoln Center at the New York Film Festival? I said, obviously, yes. And I went and uh, then I wrote my review uh, within the next couple of days. So I beat out a lot of there were already reviews, though, because it had been in Europe. Europe yeah. mm, but you weren't playing the embargo game. You were just some dude who saw the movie and wanted to write about it. I mean, it was a packed... Well, that was what was weird. I kept asking, uh, you know, because I write reviews pretty often for TNR. I asked them if they could get me, you know, into an advanced critic screening, and they were having more trouble than usual. I don't know what the deal was. So I just went to this film festival one. It was a packed house. Some people had waited online for for just, you know, tickets without any special invite. Um, Denis Villeneuve himself briefly introduced it. Uh, and it got, you know, an ovation. Uh, so I got really, that's that's the experience. Yeah. So for those who have not yet read your review, which, uh, everyone should, I think we can, we could probably drop it in a chat or something. It's at the new Republic. Uh, say that you enjoyed this film is probably an understatement. What the gist of your review the gist of my review is that I tried to be sensitive to the fact that there are two very distinct audiences that Villeneuve had to reach. Uh, one being people who have little to no familiarity with, with the books or the rest of the existing Dune franchise, and the other being serious fans, uh, which Villeneuve himself appears to be, and which David Lynch, who made the other major film adaptation of Dune, uh, was not. And it kind of showed. Um and the, the very simple version of the history here is that Lynch adapted the movie in 1984 uh, with an impressive cast and um, Brian Eno and Toto on the soundtrack. Um, and uh, it has a very cool and interesting aesthetic that is completely bonkers. Um, and in some ways, it's very faithful to the book. In other ways, it gets the book completely wrong in both little and big substantive ways. And it's very rushed at the end because the studio made him cut a lot, which made Lynch want to disown his own adaptation. So then for years, it was just like, is anyone ever going to get Dune right? You know, it's this, has, 
it gets called a cult novel, but it's actually one of the best-selling sci-fi novels ever. And Villeneuve got Dune right. Villeneuve made a movie that, I mean, I know some centers on both sides of the binary I laid out, but overwhelmingly it seems to me that both general audiences love this and are getting into the book now, and that serious fans love it and feel that he did right by the book and did really ingenious work at translating complex themes and ideas of the book into uh, a watchable and exciting and beautiful movie. So uh, I just, my review is basically just going in depth about how he did that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd um, love to have you go in conversation with uh, Jacob Bacharach, who was a, yeah. a fellow Dune lover, but he opposite take you, everybody who, who, who's interested in hearing more about like a critical take, listen to our, 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 our podcast uh, in the previous episode. Cause Jacob loves Dune has read them all multiple times, but also just could not stand the movie. Um, yeah. I, I but, love Jacob and I'm a fan and we've talked about Dune before, but I think he's, um, uh, and I haven't seen his uh, yet. I'll I'll try to watch it after this. But but he, um, I think Jacob would not mind my saying that he's a bit of a contrarian by nature. I think he is. <laughs> I think in some ways he's representative of a strain of the fandom that I sympathize with. That has always seen Dune as its very weird special thing that the mainstream just wouldn't understand, and is having some anxiety about the fact that the mainstream is starting to get into Dune and make you know like memes about it and stuff. And I get that. Anime fans have lived through this. <laughs> You know, this is just what happens sometimes. The the weird thing that you think is niche actually finds a broad audience. To me, it's just remarkable that uh, they found a complete story and a complete character arc in the beginning of that book, and they've made a movie that would feel complete, even if it doesn't get into what Dune really is all about, which is a lot of stuff. Um and I really loved just like translating some few things into filmic language in a way that condensed a lot of the very long exposition, just having Duke Leto look up at the bull's head as he's laying there, having associating Paul with these desert mice non-verbally often just by having him empathize with them. You know, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Dudes rock. Yeah. Women, scary. Oil, scary. <laughs> Arabs, scary. Dudes rocking. That's what dudes <laughs> all about. Like Harris, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts as a longtime Dune uh, appreciator? Sure, yeah. I feel like maybe I'm, I'm going to have a... Uh, I had a slightly different take, which is... I mean, I really enjoyed the film. Uh, I think it was very much a mood film. Um, I was completely transported by it, but I think, um, and I, I think there, I definitely agree that it, even though it cuts off halfway through about halfway through the book, it's still a complete arc. And you can sort of read the gurney fight in the fight in the beginning as the cl being closed off by the Jamis fight at the end. And there's a nice kind of like circularity to that. Um, I think there are certain artistic choices. I think it's a very dull palette. Uh, when I think Herbert's imagination maybe was more colorful. But I think more than that, I mean, you were mentioning, you know, he has to satisfy two audiences, right? The hardcore Dune fans, which I think are a lot of us, uh, and then also the mainstream audience. Um, but I think there's also sort of a, a, third, a third audience that I think maybe the problem is that Denis Villeneuve didn't think that this is an audience he had to care about at all in the first place, which is uh, the people that Dune is about, right? Which is, you know, indigenous people in the U.S., um, at China with Buddhism, um, but also most prominently 
uh, people from the Middle East and North Africa and Muslims. Uh, and I think on that level, I think it really is a failure um, and really an erasure because I, to me, at least, you know, I'm, I'm not Arab, but I'm, I'm Muslim. And, you know, I think Arab scary, Muslim scary isn't the point of Dune. If anything, Dune is a really deep engagement with those histories and ideas and experiences, even though it does have its problems. And as I see it, I think the film, unfortunately, is a total erasure. It's an appropriation and an erasure of that, of basically that essence of what Dune is in the first place. And because Dune, the Muslim Arab parts of Dune isn't just the Fremen, which I know are coming in the next film, um, but it's also the entire world. Um, and the way it's, it's told in this film is a very sort of generic kind of like um, white person's version of what like some like vaguely ethnic religious spirituality is supposed to look like, rather than the specificity and cultural nuance that Herbert brought to the actual novels. Sorry to yeah. be the part. I still love the film. It sounds like I hated the film. I love the film. No, those are all really valid points. And we touched on some of that stuff in, in, in our first stream because, yeah, I was also similarly kind of taken aback uh, at how, like, pronounced, like, I mean, if you know the full Dune story, if you know all the context and you know where it's going, then maybe you can sort of justify some of the choices. But it did seem, um, you know, that if if you knew you were going to get this critique of making this kind of white savior narrative and like, painting this culture in broad strokes, that, like, more could have been done to, uh, you know, make that story more dynamic and more interesting. It really did kind of feel yeah. to me at least like he just kind of you know well, went think, ahead and yeah, i think go ahead. the white savior the, the whole thing is a critique of the white savior narrative and i think the use of the bull and you know the bloody visions and all of that i think it works as a critique of the white savior mm -hmm. narrative. Mm -hmm. it just erases the fact that the world is is thoroughly i mean frank herbert himself he has a quote he says islam is a central part of the series yeah <laughs> It, the, the, the absence of Arab people, even just visually, is really shocking when you understand how deeply the novel really does engage with these ideas and this culture from like a perspective of a right wing racist person who did a lot of drugs. But still, like on a genuine level, it is trying to engage with these ideas. And there's just no Arab people in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. I, I want to get to Shayla's yeah, thoughts. Yeah. I think she has a very different perspective on this from anyone else in the chat. But one thing I just wanted to throw out real quick is that we've, we've talked a lot in the conversations we've previously had about this a lot of times about parts of the book that are left out. And in line with what you're saying, Harris, I thought we've come at this, I think in every chat so far, talking about why it's a little weird this particular scene was left out. There's a a scene where the Atreides family meets with uh, like basically the merchant barons of Arrakis really early in the book. It's a very sophisticated scene. It's one that would have played great on the screen. There's a lot going on in terms of Benny Gesserit powers, the Atreides family's control over their bureaucracy and their military. But one of the things is it's a scene that really foregrounds the fact that the people on this planet are not all the Fremen that there are people with competing political interests, economic interests, um, you know, that there are internal hierarchies of status and class that, uh, you know, the whole book is not about, but that surface enough of the iceberg that we get a sense of this being a complex and internally dynamic society into which our, our main point of view characters who are, you know, basically coded as European white people 
are coming into contact. And yeah, that was, you know, that was a big missed opportunity, not just the, you know, obviously you need to critique the white savior narrative, but you also um, need to complicate what the fake white savior is coming into contact with. I, yeah, I agree totally. Be, it, it, it was just like, sorry, Brian. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say real quick that I do as like a critique of the film that I, I was kind of missing exactly what you're talking about. Not only that, but there aren't even really any shots of what city life looks like there. It's you go from the ships to the inside of the palace and then there's the Fremen. And that's there's no sense of like what this working world really kind of looks like in motion, in movement. We get the big CGI and brutalist architecture spanning shots, but um but yeah, and I just wanted to say I, I, I agreed with that. And, and, and Shayla, yeah, what, yeah. Please. So I, you know, I haven't read the book and I only saw the movie. So hearing you all talk is really revelatory and like the depths that things get into in the book that weren't in the movie. I agree that that stuff wasn't in the movie. I write a lot about psychedelics and the mainstreaming of psychedelics. And I was curious after seeing the movie, whether spice was a metaphor for oil or for psychedelics and I was sort of looking into kind of the background I don't know if this is was probably common knowledge but um, Frank Herbert told Paul Stamets who's a famous mycologist big in the psychedelic culture and movement he told him that spice was inspired by psilocybin mushrooms and that the Bene Gesuit were inspired by the female shamans in Mexico who do, who perform the psilocybin rituals specifically Maria Sabina and that's an interesting story that gets at what we're talking about because Maria Sabina is the one who gave psilocybin to a JP Morgan uh, executive in the 50s and he's the one who brought it to Albert Hoffman, who created the synthesis and basically started the counterculture psychedelic movement in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. Um, but that process was them sort of taking it from an ind indigenous context, bringing it to the U.S., and it kind of ruined Maria Sabina's life. It started this huge wave of psychedelic tourism in her hometown. All of the other people blamed her for bringing all of these people to her town, and she was sort of ostracized. Her house was burned down once by people who were supposed to be, you know, like, her friends and her family. And so you see these really catastrophic consequences of what happened when this man just sort of like dropped in, found something magical and then like took it and left. And so to hear from Paul Stamets that that's was sort of the inspiration that Maria Sabina in particular was somebody who inspired Herbert and inspired Spice. Um, it all, you know, I feel like it ties a lot in what we're talking about when we, when people just take things from indigenous culture and then the consequences are sort of horrible for everybody. Yeah. That's very fascinating. I had no idea about that history. So actually that plays very well into um, something I was just reading about and watching a, a video about recently. Um, the historian Daniel Immerwar, who, who wrote How to Hide an Empire, um, is a huge Dune fan and wrote basically a whole paper, which maybe we can drop in the chat or something. Um, he'll, be on, okay. he'll be on Thursday. Just a quick oh, plug. Yeah. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. Uh, which is which he in which he went deep into the roots of Dune from many angles, but official uh, most pertinent here, although um, although Harris is absolutely right that the um, Islamic themes and Middle Eastern themes are absolutely central to the book and all of its sequels, um, he was mixing and matching a lot of different cultures, and he was from Frank Herbert was from the Pacific Northwest and was particularly interested in indigenous cultures in in that part of uh, North America. And and I guess also maybe in Mexico too, and um, 
he wrote a book um, whose name is escaping me. It's like, like all the other books he wrote, it's a lot less famous than Dune. But he basically wrote a book with a stand-in for himself uh, about burrowing into an indigenous culture uh, in the Northwest. I think it's the Kiluet or something like that. And Quillet. Well, whatever it is, he um, he wrote a book where there is basically a white character immersing himself in that world and seeing how colonialism is messing up that world and eventually, like, um, sacrificing himself or having uh, his sort of guide to that world kill him, is my understanding, in, <laughs> in sort of... Yeah, this you should you should watch the or read the Emmerwart thing. He'll get in or ask him about it. But I know that um having read the later books, there's a there's also a really interesting echo of this in the fourth book, God Emperor of Dune, which takes place thousands of years after the early ones, where Arrakis, the desert planet, has been mostly terraformed and greened by this point. Um and the Fremen culture has all but died out. And there are these people called the Museum Fremen who basically like hang around and sell trinkets, you know, displaced from their original cultural context to tourists. Uh, And I mean, that's so reminiscent of what you were just talking about. I think Shayla, like I think Frank Herbert had seen up close how um, colonialism and, and Western tourism and borrowing spirituality could could erode and destroy these cultures. Yeah, it's so, when I think about how the sequel and like the coming movies will be coming out in the next few years around the same time that um, psychedelics might be either legalized or medicalized, these are all like active conversations that are happening in the psychedelic space right now about like indigenous reciprocity and what it means for people to become super, super rich off of compounds that were just kind of like taken from indigenous people at one point. And indigenous reciprocity is almost turning into, not to be a cynic, like greenwashing for psychedelic for-profit companies. You know, they'll just like, like people stamp organic on something. They'll stamp on their, like, this was, you know, we contributed 1% of our profits back to indigenous people. And it's, you know, it is like, it is very similar. And it's sort of like a warning to you know what what the what the reality of that really looks like, and there was a great piece in Scientific American that talked about how um, you know not really understanding and respecting that like the desert is not just a barren landscape, but it is an ecosystem unto itself, and we like prioritize the idea of like terraformed landscapes or green landscapes over the desert is just like another form of like prioritizing Western ideals of even what like the land should look like. So a question I had for you, Shayla, as someone who is not familiar with the deep lore surrounding Dune, watched the movie and enjoyed it, was what did you think the spice was? Yeah, so I, because I knew I was going to have this conversation, I tried not to read too much about it before I saw the movie, but I couldn't help myself by doing a little bit of reading. And essentially, okay, what I thought when I was watching the movie is I thought about two other science fiction books, one was Brave New World and one is The Island, both by Aldous Huxley. And both of these books are written by Aldous Huxley, who is a huge psychedelic enthusiast. But in one book, Brave New World, the drug, like the psychoactive drug that's there, Soma, is there to sort of placate the people. It's used as a tool for social control. And then in The Island, they take the psychedelic drug which helps everybody establish this utopia and everything is perfect there. And when I saw Spice, 
I thought it was more of like an accurate representation of what a psychoactive substance in the real world would be like, which is that it can be used for like a myriad of purposes within the same universe. So it's not like in one universe you have the dystopia and when you have the utopia, it's going to be pretty similar to like when psychedelics are mainstreamed here, which is that people use them for like medicinal, spiritual and political purposes. And it all happens in like the same messy space and then those clashes like it like they all clash with one another so I did see it as like I think it's you know it's still science fiction but I, I did see it as like a psychoactive drug that's extremely amenable to set and setting and intention um and and that's actually why I really liked it but I did see it as like a psychoactive substance in that context that's really yes which is which is something I think makes it a very powerful and durable metaphor is that as we previously discussed it's unique in in science fiction that it has this dual purpose it's oil it's the undergirding of a modern economy it's also this psychoactive substance but going to the latter it's in a weird way almost very realistically depicted in that it's yeah. a tool it's something that can establish your priors it's something that can liberate um as well as control and yeah and something else that's important which i'd love to hear more about how this is portrayed in the book is that similar to psychedelic experiences in our universe and world like the whole messiah thing is like that when you have these experiences when you take the spice when you see stuff it has this noetic quality which means it's just like true without any evidence right like you just feel it and then it's just like definitely true like he's definitely the messiah he definitely has to do these things and people just believe it and that's something that's like psychedelic culture today and psychedelic medicine is really having to reckon with is this like noetic quality that these drugs bring about and really it's like a it's like an epistemological problem. Like, is it what's really true and what's the evidence for those things being yeah. true? And so I get the sense that in the book, it's all more complicated yeah. than, than the movie portrayed it. Um, there is, they do later get into the book, into the nature of like prescience and uh, whether or not you can live out a different destiny once you've seen the future. Yeah, that's um, and, Yeah, which I feel like definitely ties into your read here of the spy, I really liked the sort of psychedelic dreams that Paul has in this film because he it says to you directly, it says out loud, you know, I know that these are not all literally true things, but they are all true things that are going to happen to me. I know a knife will be important. I've been dreaming of this girl, and the, I love the scene where he remembers his vision of Jamis at the end as he's killing him. Remembers a vision of this person being his friend knowing that there was a different version of this that could have yeah. played out, but actually he is here. That, to me, in my, my limited experience with mushrooms mostly, uh, definitely felt very, very real to how those are experienced, how things can sort of surface in your brain and you accept them as truth immediately, even if they're not something that's literally happened or can literally happen. I was, uh, I was discussing how prescience works in the books and in the movie with uh, some friends and fellow diehards actually this morning. And um, one of them made a really interesting point that having seen the movie twice hadn't clicked with me before, which is when Paul sees those Jami's uh, visions, which I actually don't remember if that specifically is in the book, if, if he, if Jamis is in his visions, a lot of stuff is, but when he sees those and Jamis is showing him the desert and, you know, and is his friend, it, what occurred to my friend was that, 
part of why Paul is reluctant to kill Jonas, even after he's bested him, isn't just that it's his first kill and it's a loss of innocence, but because, you know, early in the movie, after the Gamjabar test with the Reverend Mother, she asks him, um, you know, do you often have dreams that, that occur exactly as you imagine them? And he says, not exactly. And they kind of end the conversation right there. But going off what the book has, the way it kind of works is Paul is always getting glimpses of possible futures. Uh, and the spice greatly heightens this. And these glimpses of possible futures, he he sees them, but he doesn't see the chain of events that will lead from where he is to them. And he doesn't know for sure that they're real. And then the tragedy of Paul is that by the time he realizes a particular future is this is what's going to happen. It's too late to change it. So my friend's theory is that by avoiding killing Jamis, Paul is struggling to make the, the future where Jamis is his friend happen and realizing he can't, realizing that it's already locked in. And by the same token, although this is the kind of ultra spoiler for how the book ends and the rest of the series, um, you know, in killing Jamis, he is putting himself on the path to his what he calls in the movie a holy war, but what in the book is always called a jihad, um, which will be a, a genocidal war across the universe and which he has glimpses of in the movie. Um, and in the book, he desperately wants to avoid that and finds that with every action he takes, he's locking himself further into it. Right. Yeah. And I, I wanted to talk about uh, one more. I want to, I also want to get to mysticism and what, what's going on and with the culture, but I also do want to want to, Ask Shayla, Shayla one more thing: what she what she makes of sort of the placement of the um, sort of the, the the drugs in this sort of economy of Dune's world? Because one of the things, you know, it's really hard to make like genuine um, sort of genuinely novel, genuinely sort of um, uh, interesting and compelling speculative fiction. Something that like posits a real alternative to how uh, a world or an economy or a society would function. A lot of times it's just like this, but in space or this, but in a planet. And what some of our conversation yesterday about how intertwining this commodity of spice with, you know, it's part oil metaphor, part psychoactive drug metaphor. Um, I was wondering what you made of, uh, of sort of that leap, like this is, it's vital to space travel. It's vital for transportation throughout the universe. It's vital for the economy, this like sort of weird neo-capitalist feudalist economy in, in space in the future. And it's vital to these religious orders. What, you know, was, do you think this was the product of Herbert looking at all the, like how it worked in an in indigenous context, looking at how it worked sort of in the nation uh, counterculture and saying like, this is going to be the future. Like the drug is going to do all of this stuff for us. Cause I, I really was really interested to hear that link you drew with psilocybin. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Again, this is just based on what I read in Paul Stamet's book where he said that Herbert said this, but Herbert was very struck by Paul Stamet's, um, just like mycological practices, how he grew the spores, how like how how far they could be grown with just so little growing material, all of the disparate things that they could do, including like, you know, travel in the sense that like when you take mushrooms, you kind of go on a trip and can feel to people like they're like shooting through space kind of thing. Um, you can use it right to confer with your ancestors, speak to people in your past, see the future. And so again, based on this thing that I read in Paul Stamet's book, 
all of the ver variety of experiences that can be brought forth by a psychedelic substance are encompassed kind of by the various ways they're used in, in, in the Dune movie, at least, or, you know, because I haven't read the books. I think what what he probably just guessed at, but that he got very correctly, is that there's, I don't think there was a way to foresee the kind of psychedelic industry and for-profit space that exists now, something that I write about a lot. There are like thousands of psychedelic patents being filed. Um, you know, there are million-dollar companies there. Peter Thiel is one of the biggest investors in psychedelics. You know, he's one of Trump's supporters. So I think the idea that something like this could both be used in a ritualized setting to get in touch with your ancestors and then also be like an integral part of the capitalist market economy is it's not even like it's that far off like it's happening now which i think is what's so remarkable about like having it be so um spread out in a society like that interesting it's very interesting i i, I just listened to an, a wbai interview from 1976 that I think they just aired for the first time since then. And Herbert was talking about the need to um, decriminalize drugs in the 70s and how, how it's been criminalized and it's, it's sort of, you know, affecting, you know, people without means. It was very interesting, even though he's clearly a Republican, he also was, was wanted to, he wanted to like legalize drugs in a limited way, um, even though that time period, which is pretty fascinating. He hates he the was, man is his big thing. He, he yeah, hates, he the, hates man. the man. That's yeah. Right. He wasn't a big drug user, was he? He tried it, according to Imrawar. He, he right. I, I think Imrawar mentioned in the video, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think he mentioned that he tried peyote. Um, one thing that is not discussed in either movie, but I think is a very important context from the book, it, it's not contradicted by the movies either, it's just like they don't want to give all this exposition, is the reason why drugs are so central to the Dune universe. Um, which has to do with an event not mentioned in the movies called the Butlerian Jihad. When the movie says at the beginning it's the year 10,191, they don't mean since Christ, they mean since the Butlerian Jihad, which is itself far in our future. But basically what it is, is um, at some point in our future, we will be enslaved to the machines. I you know, you could argue we already are, uh, though probably not that we were in the early 1960s. But uh, thinking machines, as they call them, will take over our lives. And eventually there will be a big religious revolt against the thinking machines. They'll be overthrown and there will, the, there will be a new religion, basically, for the, the general universe um, and in which thinking machines are banned as, as abominations. Uh, so Dune, as you can see in the movie, but no one talks about it, because why would they? There's no computers. There's no robots. Um, so all the functions that would be carried out by computers and robots are instead carried out with psychoactive drugs and particular schools of training for using them. So the Bene Gesserit, although the movie hasn't really established this yet, they use the spice for a lot of what they do. The Spacing Guild, which is only briefly mentioned, actually is more featured in Lynch's movie, um, immerses its navigators in these tanks of orange spice gas until they turn into these kind of floating fish-like mutants. Uh, you can see this in the Lynch movie. And they, it's not, a, a lot of uh, people misunderstand this. It's not that the spice is like oil in the sense that you would like burn it to power space flight. It's that the navigator's minds, the navigators see through time and space with prescient visions and are thus able to do what a navigation computer could do uh, in the absence of computers. And then they don't say the word mentat in the movie, but 
Thufir on the Atreides side and Piter, uh, the, the Harkonnen advisor, the guys with the stains under their lips. Those guys are called Mentats, and they've basically, they use drugs to train to use their minds as computers. They, and, and that's sort of a role. And this yeah, is this is something I'd love to hear Harris uh, speak to, is this is a really fascinating juncture of two completely different things, right? On the one hand, with the Butlerian Jihad, we have this very mechanistic... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, schema set up for the use of these drugs, uh, which is that, you know, AI has been banned, presumably in the future. Facebook has ruined society to the point where we smash all the computers and, you know, unlock the potential of the human mind. On the other hand, it is tied in the very name of it to specific religious contexts. Holy war. Um, jihad, you know, a term that, as has been noted, is avoided in the movie, but is very central to the books, is, you know, one of Herbert's great appropriations here. <laughs> you know, if, if you can put it that way, throughout the books, he's interpreting these very specific terms in ways that wrench them out of their context. Um, how does that play into what's off the screen in the movie? How does that play into what's in the books? How do, you know, how core is that to the mythos we're talking about here? Um, yeah, I mean, you're asking the very controversial jihad question. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very, I mean, there is a sense in which, you know, uh, I think it's not correct to say, you know, oh, they've totally erased, they've totally done what's not in the book, because in the book, jihad, holy war, and crusade are all kind of used interchangeably. But jihad is sort of the more go-to term. Um, and it's, I mean, I think there's one gloss on it, which is that when Herbert uses jihad, he's referring to um, uh, anti-imperial resistance, like historical, like Sufi movements who are saying they're jihadists and they're fighting like the British or the French or something. Um, and then later on, there, there's this sort of Afghanistan context, but that was afterwards. Uh, but then uh, there's another sense in which jihad is really describing, I'm trying not to get too deep into the weeds here with other books, but it's really describing uh, missionary imperialist violence because the jihad comes about because of what I view as modernization reforms that, that Paul brings as this off-worlder to the Fremen traditions. And it's after the change to, to the Fremen traditions that the jihad comes. So in many ways, he's describing like a Christian imperialist like product of conversion. That's what the jihad is as well, as well as having these anti-colonial valences. And what I love so much about it is that Herbert really understood what jihad meant historically and theologically and was just, he just basically says like, F you to whatever your preconception is. I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want with it. And I think the fact that he's doing that, whatever the hell he wants with these categories is itself 
what makes it so subversive. And that confusion is what I really love. He actually, I, I have a quote here where he says, from that 76 interview, he says, we tend in this culture uh, not to study Islam, not to recognize how much it, it's contributed to our culture because of the religious wars out of which our present consciousness has come. But we owe Islam enormous debts of gratitude. So he clearly understands the context in which he's using these terms and playing with them in productive ways. Uh, but yeah, that's not in the film. But I think the fact that jihad isn't in the film, that in itself wouldn't be a problem. But it's the fact that so many other, it's a series of very small things that are not there that they chose to emphasize, which is for me part of the issue. Yeah, as much as I love Zendaya and I think she's an excellent Chani, the, the absence, the, the fact that the Fremen are now, instead of being a specific culture of people, are now kind of a catch-all other, to me speaks to the lack of specificity here obfuscates the importance of these themes in the larger text. Like you, you do need to have Muslims and Arabs be much more present in the text in order to bring these things to the surface because they're, he is deliberately making the point that we ignore them anyway. Especially when you're playing with themes like when you have uh, a vaguely space Spanish family going to the vaguely Spanish Middle, Middle East and North Africa, there's a lot of associations and thematic connections one could draw that are not masterfully handled always in the books, but that are reckoned with and grappled with. Uh, whereas yeah. they're more Easter eggs, I think, in the movie. In Harris, some ways. Harris, would you mind? I, it is really interesting. And for those of uh, listening who haven't uh, read the books and understand what that is, can you talk a little bit more about how um, – it surfaces in the books because it isn't it isn't just in the language of warfare and and, and jihad and that in the book he's kind of uh, drawing from 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 a lot of different angles there. How jihad specifically? No, 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 not jihad. How how sort of he draws from from Muslim culture, from Islam, oh. and from you know because it's you know the the emperors, even the Padishah emperor, right? And it's and and there's it's in the language, it's in a lot of the terminology. Um, can you can you talk about some of the other ways that it manifests? Yeah, I can tell that that's the problem though. There's so much to talk about. I can't possibly. I'll try to do it. I'll do it to, like the highlights. But I think the general thing I'll say is. Uh, I think sometimes there's a tendency with Dune, not only for the Arab and Muslim aspects, but for like, if you're going to talk about the Quileutes as well, um, and there's even Latin American, Caribbean, there's a lot of different stuff in there. But is it one, there's one tendency to say that Dune, is, he's making analogies to like oil or water politics or something. Um, and I think that's partly right. I think partly what works with the reason it's so enduring is that he has multiple analogies that are overlapping. But I think at the same time, what's so interesting is that it is truly, it's not just analogy, it's, it's speculative fiction. He's trying to think of what would all these cultures look like if they sort of mixed around 20,000 years in the future. Uh, and so I think that's what he does, especially with a lot of the Islamic elements. So, for example, um, the Fremen, they, they describe um, uh, Paul as like Abu Zaid. Um, and they say that Abu Zaid was a man from their ancestry who rode in a frigate uh, like away from the guild and then he came back. And it was as if he, it had only been a day or something like that. Uh, now, in Islam, Abu Zaid is the adopted, Zaid is the adopted uh, son of the Prophet Muhammad. And one of the most famous stories in Islam is called Isra wal Miraj, 
which is um, uh, when he uh, travels to Jerusalem and, and then to heaven and back on like a mythical uh, creature. Uh, and it's very clear that that's what Herbert is describing. Uh, and, you know, there's one way to read it as this sort of cheap appropriation. I don't think that's what it is because the fact that he changed, he, he didn't just say, oh, the prophet Muhammad was in a spaceship or like some magical horse or something. He changes the words to say, how would some future people, they wouldn't say this magical horse, they would say it's a, 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 a frigate. They, they wouldn't maybe have the name Muhammad, but they would say Abu Zaid, the, the, the father of Muhammad. Um, and so it's very clear that he's taking these really core ideas and translating, trying to think what would people, how would they change and think about them in new ways in the far future. And even the stuff, so like Mahdi, for example, um, is a really key figure in Islamic uh, eschatology of the end times. And he's, he's considered that he's going to come back in the end times uh, with, um, uh, with Jesus, with the Messiah. Uh, and so it's important both more in Shi'i eschatology, but also in Sunni eschatology. And even in Children of Dune and, and Dune Messiah, there's a lot of language around false messiahs. And Children of Dune describes Leto II as uh, basically the, be- the beast of the earth from the book of Revelation, which has connections to the false messiah who is this, like, who's basically an evil version of the Mahdi that everyone thinks he's the Mahdi, but really is a false messiah. So I just really went into we- the weeds there. But the point is that there's a lot of really fascinating stuff that he's tapping into that I think no one has really done. I wrote an essay that was about this, but the essay isn't really like a serious academic. It's like, it sounds academic, but it really, it's a, it's a call for, I think, you know, more serious scholars that there's a lot of stuff to mind and really think about of what he was doing. And Herbert says in interviews, I'm drawing from all of these different cultures and religions, and it's up to the reader to piece it together for themselves. I'm not going to explain it for you. And that's and it's one of the fascinating it's it's one of the fascinating things about the world building here, uh, which hangs together in a lot of ways in others. It doesn't that, you know, it's suggestive. We get hints of, you know, the orange Catholic Bible in yeah. its name <laughs> is is an allusion to, you know, the, the coming together of, of, of the Catholics and the Protestants and a lot of the. uh eschatological Islamic imagery that he's playing with hints, you know, in ways that I think, you know, certainly at the time he was writing would have been really obscure to, uh, you know, a lot of the U S audience he was writing for about um, similar resolutions within Islam, right? Like there's, there's allusions to the Zen Sunni practice at the same time that he's playing with all these uh, ideas that are primarily associated with Shia Islam about, uh, prophecy, the return of messiahs, uh, hidden figures emerging uh, that hints somewhere in the backstory in the last 10,000 years during which all of this has been occurring of, you know, ties between different sects, new things emerging. Sometimes it doesn't work, but when it does, you just feel transplanted in the future when these currents would have touched on each other and emerged into forms that don't make sense in our present context. Watching this with my partner, um, he had a rough year, uh, like a lot of us said during the pandemic. And when he first heard the litany against fear, the first thing he said to me was like, this is just stoic thinking. This is just stoicism. 
And it's the moments when you can recognize the aspects of mysticism that already exist in your life being like expanded out into something so much more grand in this narrative that make the mysticism of Dune so fascinating to me. Like the litany of against fear, really, the stoicism is all about just like accepting that you can't control some things in life and concentrating instead only on the things that you can control. Um, you know, the idea, number one idea of stoicism is memento mori, remember that you will die. And so think about your entire life with that reference point. What would you be happy doing, uh, you know, or doing or not doing by the time of your death? If you, you know, if you really want to write a book, really just think to yourself, will I be happy dying not writing a book? And then you'll sort of get the answer on whether or not you should do it. Uh, and that, that is just what fear is the mind killer really, really means. So uh, to me, like what, how this is visually expressed in the movie, it, it seems to be really indebted to like sword and sandal epics and like biblical epics in a lot of, a lot of ways, not just because it's in a desert, but because those are the visual language that we use to represent that epicness. And that always just has to do with religion and mysticism at the end of the day. I, I want to encourage anyone. I mean, I obviously want to encourage everyone out there to read at least the first book because it's wonderful. But in particular for what we've just been discussing, the first book has appendices in that are in every edition. It has a lengthy glossary full of terms, many of which are clearly derived from Arabic. But it has a few appendices and it has one that is about religion in the Dune universe. And it goes over a kind of, I don't know, maybe five or ten page history uh, in-universe history of how all the religions of old earth developed into Zen Sunni or Orange Catholic Bible or whatever. Um, and I won't rehash it here except to say that, um, like, that it it's very much in the design of everything he's doing. And he, he really, like, gets at this with all kinds of clever formulations to, you know, imagine that tens of thousands of years in the future, all the existing religious traditions, including, for instance, Zen Buddhism with Sunni Islam, but also with like indigenous American, uh, you know, shamanistic cultures thrown in too, uh, would have merged and produced something new. I also want to emphasize, though, that religion is not, and this is something David Lynch missed completely in his movie, religion is not literally true in the Dune universe. That is none of these, like Paul is not the Messiah and no one is the Messiah. And, you know, the books are at best agnostic about that, but they're extremely conscious. And the new movie is in a way, the old movie wasn't conscious of religion as something that has strong political implications such that, um, you know, when the scene, when they land on Arrakis in the Villeneuve movie, and the the people are gathered and they're chanting Lisan Al Gabe, the the voice from the outer world. And Jessica makes clear to Paul that these are superstitions planted by the Bene Gesserit for political purposes among the Fremen, which is straight out of the book. It's totally left out by Lynch, who basically makes Paul the literal Messiah at the end. Um, and it's very very important to understanding the point he's trying to make about the danger of mixing politics and religion. I also, Harris made a great point earlier about um, how Paul bringing, you know, Western colonialism into the Fremen culture changes it into something, into the jihad, basically, uh, and and uh, pollutes it and corrupts it in a certain way. I think that's a very keen reading of the book that I'm not sure it ever 
quite clicked with me before, but it is sort of hinted at in the introduction to the Villeneuve movie when Chani, in laying out the basics of, you know, Arrakis, then the Harkonnens left, she says, who will our new oppressor be? And we cut immediately to Paul waking up from a dream. Mm-hmm. So the, the Villeneuve is well aware that Paul is not a savior. Paul is going to bring a catastrophe on the Fremen. Just, it reminds me a lot what you were just saying of what Shayla was saying about the nature of psychedelics and the nootropic nature of them, where you can uh, summon truth from them, even from things that are not literally true. Like, Paul is not a messiah, but and these prophecies are not true, but they are true meaningfully, materially to the people of this world. And that is like the, the great tragedy of this entire story. Yeah. And just what you were saying about religion, that really harkens back to exactly what was going on in psychedelic culture in the 50s as well. I mean, Aldous Huxley is famous for the idea of perennialism, which is this idea that we have many religions and there's one truth sort of above them all, right? There's something that unites them all in that when you take psychedelics, you can have these mystical experiences that aren't Hindu or Buddhist or Catholic or whatever. They, you know, they are above that. They combine them all. It's the the perennial the perennial religion. And so the idea that a psychoactive substance is a conduit for that, again, was really ripe in like the culture and people were really feeling like they were discovering that, you know, sort of ironically, somebody like Huxley in the island would suggest that once you have this sort of merging of religions, that people on the island have sort of like the best of Western, best of Western and Eastern religions merged together. The result is utopia. And I think what what the Dune movie shows really nicely is like, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. The best, one of the, I think the most interesting scenes in the movie is when Paul gets a vision of Paul's jihad and where he's just freaks out. Like he uses the voice on his mother cause he's so terrified of this. And you just watch him then from that point on, slowly slide into that path where he's going to be the person that is enacting that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's cinematically it's a fascinating scene in part because it's played out as almost like a video game cutscene. Total wish fulfillment, total heroism. He's in this gleaming armor. Mm-hmm. He's leaping from enemy to enemy, slaying them all. And, like, and then he looks Johnny up at this horrified is there with him, and they're like yeah. making googly eyes at each other too. It's like but he also he looks up at this sense of horror, and then he, you know. Wakes up, he he turns to his mother. This is this is one of the scenes where I think um, the gender ni- dynamics of all this do come to the fore. Where he's someone who relies on his mother, relies on this eugenicist women's order that is for thousands of years, and trying to create a man who can do what a woman can. And he's saying, you know, this is the path of war. I see. Before me, is there any alternative? And there's not really a good answer to that. It's like you've been trained as a, you've been trained as an implement of war to fulfill, you know, to fulfill prophecy and eugenic scheming. And I don't really know. It's left ambiguous as as it probably should be. Yeah. Yeah. The movie does do a really good job of kind of, uh, making all of those sort of forces seem like this, this, this intergalactic social forces seem pretty immutable and with the, the, you know, the, the feudal houses and the emperor and it's just, it, we open sort of with an explicit rendering of that occupation. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but yeah, it does, it does seem 
in some way the story is basically Paul succumbing to these these systems and and in which the the only outcome the way that the Bene Gesserit has laid out for him is 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 one of is one of war and perpetuating sort of these oppressions. I, I think, think that's fair. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting parts of the novel Dune is all the epigraphs he has above the chapters, and often the epigraphs they're, they're kind of like historical annotations that differ from what the characters think is happening. Uh, so there's always like the historical narrative, and then what's actually happening. You don't know what's what. And one of my favorite epigraphs is from, I think, Princess Irulan. And she says, and it's right before, I think it's like right after Kynes' death and or right before the Jihad Spice Vision or something like that. And basically, Irulan is saying, you know, everyone thinks that, you know, Paul was prescient and he saw the future and that's why everything happened and it was destined to be, even if it was a tragedy. Um, but she adds on, she says, that's not actually the case. Um, perhaps what is really happening is Paul thinks that he's seeing the future and therefore it must happen. And everyone else thinks he's seeing the future and therefore it must, it must happen. And because everybody thinks that it's inevitable, they make it happen. Um, and it's, there's some really wonderful stuff in children of Dune where there's like a bunch of chapters where it's like Alia, one of the later characters is talking about how she's trying to control the Fremen and how, the chains of their power structure that's when the, according to ben, the Bene Gesserit ma- maxim that's when their powers the Bene Gesserit power structure breaks down as soon as people know that the, that you know these power structures are not inevitable and I think that's it's, one of the most interesting aspects of the novels and even like going back to the religion aspect I mean I think I sort of read Herbert as critiquing sort of western ideas of organized religion because every single book at the end it always returns to some return to some kind of like pre-modern, pre-colonial, non-Western tradition, whether it's Tao or like, like, so there's one scene where the, the, the Fremen say that when, when the Bene Gesserit are trying to control us or manipulate us, we return to the Hadith, which are the prophetic sayings. Or he also talks about like, there's a the Quileute influence there as well. So it, there's some way in which, you know, these, he has this idea that innovation on religion is bad, but all these, like, it's kind of this orientalist notion that like all these... Yeah. Colonial pre-modern things are better, and we have to return to that. Yeah. And it's interesting it ends with Shiana doing that, basically. But I just want to put in with one point here, which is just this is purely in terms of the technical presentation of the narrative in a novel, and it's not something you can reproduce in a movie. One of the fascinating things about it is that throughout the first book, as only becomes clear in later books, is very much a past history written by a member of the royal house that Paul establishes, she is looking back and trying to establish an accurate history of what happened. And it's the closest thing we have to authoritative truth in the novel. The actual um, perspectives we're given in the novel are very biased and contingent, and it's not clear who's writing them. It's possible that the whole thing could be a literary work written by a descendant of Paul Atreides, right? Like that is one possibility here for how we're even getting a window into the story. It's also, it could be an omniscient Dickensian narrator. It's yeah. never really made clear, but that makes every, every point of prophecy, every point of intersection between economics and politics and religion, everything were made very aware 
that the text we're reading could be forwarding an agenda or not. We don't know who's writing it. And that's, that's just something that's really cool. And I think one of the sources of the enduring mysteries we're talking about here, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's uh, just cool and you can think about, but there's no real base layer um, truth, which plays very well into a novel and a series that in some ways are about the effects of like deep long-term exposure to psychedelic substances and like what they could do to your, your view of your reality and history. Yeah. Cause it's, it, while it is true, like narratively that Paul Shihad is, is inevitable. You see in the movie that there is a point where Jessica says, let's get off world. Let's get out of here. And Paul refuses. Like that's that's the moment when that jihad becomes inevitable because he refuses to not take revenge for the death of his father. And Paul is never going to be the kind of person that would refuse that. But also he did have a choice. You can defeat prophecy in this way. It's just he didn't want to. He also sees himself, or at least this is how he justifies it out loud, as carrying out his um, his father's mission to form this alliance with the Fremen. Yeah. Tim, I did want to um, say that your interpretation of the omniscient narrator of the book as being an unreliable one is is fascinating to me. I've always read it more or less the opposite of what you're saying, in that I've taken the main narrative, third-person passages of the book to be quote-unquote true and like... Uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, you see into the internal thoughts of characters and they obviously have their own, you know, self-justifications and stuff. But I've always taken the main narrative to be true, whereas the princess Irulan epigraphs, and then in, uh, in the later books, other people write the epigraphs. I've always seen those as um, hints at the weird political order that's going to follow the end of the book. And yeah, and that's part of why fine. that's part of why I was I was trying to frame that as this is what this is something that to me works just purely in terms of mechanics or literary devices in the book. So I think you can read it either way. Um, yeah. You can take either the retroactive view of what you're writing as authoritative, or you can take what you're reading as authoritative and the revisionist read of it that's presented interstitially as as dominant and i know we're deep into the deep into the weeds here uh, on some of the stuff either either way or some other way what dune conveys very strongly is that like history is unreliable is used for various agendas and the conflicting narratives are a huge part of it that's central yeah and so so you know to bring this back to one of our core themes um to pose this to you shayla i know there is research on the noetic effects you were talking about earlier, the sense that many people have when they've been exposed to psychedelic substances that, you know, they have stepped out of, of time and space. You know, I'm not, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not asking um, you to discourse on research that says this is actually what happens. But what, you know, what is, what is the cause of that? What are some of the, the consequences of that? And how are people who are, you know, trying to establish guidelines around these response, the responsible uses of these substances, trying to deal with that persistent feeling that I think anybody who's had an experience uh, with a drug like that will, you know, will know a bit about? 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of, again, this is very complicated and it's something people are worrying a lot about right now, which is that you have two things that are true at the same time. One is that people who take these substances can experience profound relief from things like treatment-resistant depression or PTSD, like ways of thinking that felt really stuck that then they have a lot of relief from and nothing else helped. Um, But then at the same time, that comes with kind of a troubling notion that these are things that make you very suggestible and also liable to make big changes in your way of life and outlook um, that feel really true, true to an extent that like previous psychoactive uh, chemicals like SSRIs or therapy weren't able to budge that somehow these are able to move the needle in that direction. And so when you think about a therapist whose job it is to guide somebody through that, or you think about, you know, vulnerable people signing up for something, they're signing up for a brain reset. That's something that's in the media a lot about psychedelic use. This is like, we've never had a drug like this that's going to be available to a lot of people where the extra pharmacological factors are so important in the outcome of the experience themselves, right? When when you drink coffee, you always feel more awake. When you take a sleeping pill, you always feel sleepy. When you take psychedelics, like who knows what's going to happen? Like it could be a whole bunch of things, but whatever happens, it could be very meaningful to you and it could feel like the truth. I think that's like one of the most interesting things about turning psychedelics into a mainstream medicine that I think about and that I write about. Um, but it all of those things come to the fore in Dune when you see how a psychoactive substance like this used in a bunch of different contexts can just sort of like grind down and become these very niche uses, even though it's the same substance used over and over again. Yeah. Or even how it's suffused onto, you know, the, again, uh, this, this commodity that this commodity that's so central that where, you know, it gives those who control it and use it the most, these sort of delusions of grandeur or this knowing, I really appreciated that point that David made where it was like, you know, you know, these in the books, it's like dubious as to whether these are actual visions or anything, but he's having them and they're linked to the substance that is heightening them. And it, it just as easily could be, you know, a critique or comment on how those who control, you know, the oil or the central commodity, you know, are in fact giving themselves these sort of self these powers this self-importance these delusions i think Um, i think it's really interesting in the movie and i'm curious to hear this how it's explained more in the book that it seems like paul's really sensitive to spice like he's a lightweight which means i feel like the implication there for me was like he's a lightweight like of course he's going to start having these crazy visions because he like can't handle it right it's It's also this is not something yeah this is not something i necessarily think you could cinematically depict easily but it is depicted in the book that there is kind of um persistent spice exposure and there is long-term spice exposure there are people who you can probably like do the equivalent of eating an edible and they can get really high off spice and maybe they'll see god but there are also these people like uh the members of the spacing guild who use the spice to just plot coordinates on interstellar jumps. It's not really very explained who need to be immersed in it. And, you know, there's a conversation at a point in the first book where Paul is having these visions. And I think he, he talks to his mother, the lady Jessica, and they just discuss this. It's like, it's in everything. It's in the food. It's in the drink. You're addicted. You can't leave the planet. And this is what's affecting you. This is what's causing it. They come to this realization 
That's another element of the drug use that I think is um, realistic is a very fraught word to use in this context, but that is um, complicated in the same way that the drug doesn't just give pure visions of prophecy or doom people uh, to eternal death. It, um, it has different effects when used in different ways. People uh, who are being affected by it don't even necessarily realize that's happening until they're already uh, hooked on it. I love that they show you the preparation of spice coffee in this movie. <laughs> Where they spit in the coffee machine. That was a nice touch, I yeah, thought. I loved that. <laughs> they, um, to your question about how it's portrayed in the book, Shayla, um, I think... I would want to emphasize that although Paul is not the Messiah and nobody is the Messiah and the, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Meta, I I don't know, whatever. Religion, metaphysical dimensions are basically um, not real, not to be taken at face value. Um, What is, I think, meant to be taken at face value is like some degree of actual prescience is happening. In other words, these aren't just hallucinations. It's not just a a trip. Like they are seeing visions of actual, and you can tell that in the movie. I mean, he sees Chani's face and later he sees Chani. So, you know, he, he, he saw a specific person he hasn't met yet. Um, And that was real, but also the genetic breeding that the, the, the eugenics that the Bene Gesserit do, um, we're supposed to take a certain amount of that at face value too. In other words, Paul isn't just sensitive to the spice. I'm not sure it's ever quite phrased that way in the book, although it works. Um, You know, Paul is the product of this ancient breeding scheme that makes him, you know, very physically and mentally gifted. It's why he's having prescient visions even before he has the spice. The spice makes them stronger and gets him addicted and, you know, kind of he, he actualizes as maybe the Kwisatz Haderach, uh, whatever that means. But um, but yeah, I think to a certain extent, we're supposed to take at face value that through breeding, training, and spice, the human mind can actually like do things. Yeah, that- and I think, I think without getting into something yeah. that could be its own episode of the series of conversations, um, the effect of the spice in terms of prescience is presented almost in terms of quantum mechanics. There are, you know, (laughs) there are various universes. There are various ways to affect those universes. Things are predetermined. It's in line with our understanding of what, uh, you know, parallel or bubbled universes would be. It's, it's one of the things that's remarkable about the original books. Um, The more you plumb into them and the more you become aware of, a limited Herbert's perspective was uh, he was really well ahead of his time, whether intuitively or, you know, by accident in our evolving understanding of many of the things we're talking about here. It's interesting to me that spice is presented as addictive and that you go into withdrawal when you go off of it, because that's not mostly not the case with psychedelic drugs um, where they are addictive in that way or, or have withdrawal. They don't, they don't have it is. And it's not presented as a, as a craving you get or anything, but that the withdrawal of it is, is toxic. I see. That's interesting. It can literally literally withdraw from it. Yeah. Just, 
considering like the war on drugs and the and the you know prohibition of psychedelics that happened with Nixon like I'm very curious about that too that aspect and like where it comes from um yeah it's just an interesting like deviation from you know from what psychedelics are like and but that that sort of idea might have been in the pop culture too yeah. well if you like I, this was pre uh Nixon by a, I don't know, five, five years or so. Five years. Oh, interesting. It, it, so, the books, they were written in 63. They were actually written. Oh, in okay. But they, they think, were compiled into a novel in 65. So, right. Yeah. So, so I think in the interest of uh, leaving everybody with a sense of withdrawal until the next episode, uh, we've been at it for about an hour here. This has been fantastic. And I do, I do really think it speaks to like the richness of this of of Dune. It's such a great whether Frank Herbert was like an insane genius or he just like hit the jackpot where he was mining his ore at the right place at the right time where all these currents intersected. Who knows? I mean, I'm loath to say that somebody as insane as he was could be a genius, but it, it just speaks to the richness of this work and this world that we have so much to talk about every episode and. Um, yeah, it, this this was a great conversation, um, and and thank you, thank you all for joining us. Um, we have two more to go. We are going to be l- kind of taking a left turn tomorrow um, and playing the weirdest, maybe offshoot cultural pro- cultural product that Dune inspired, which is the real time strategy game Dune <laughs> Two. Uh, we're going to actually be using Twitch for its intended purpose and 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 playing playing the game a little bit. Um, and talking about it was the first real-time strategy game of its kind to really be successful. So it uh, inspired its own sort of wing of, of of pop culture. And we'll get in that, into that tomorrow and have our last stream on Thursday with uh, looking at Empire with Kelsey Atherton, Matthew Galt, and Daniel Immerwar, um, who we've mentioned a bunch today. So, yeah, this uh, amazing. David, Ida, Harris, Shayla. Tim and Jason, who's been lurking in the shadows, producing for us. Um, amazing! Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everyone. to everyone for coming. A great convo, and let's all do now more in the days and years to come. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, Jason. If you can play us out with our music here, I think you're listening in. I already Michigan. am. 